Welcome to Seg Contra, a podcast of the Soccer Doctrina Project. My name is Ryan Brady, and I'm joined by Matthew Duganzik. Today, we're going to be discussing intrinsic evils. Yeah, so it would probably be best to start with a little discussion of that term, intrinsic evils or intrinsically evil actions. And we can talk about its antecedents in the, in the Western Christian tradition and how it's understood today. And we are also planning on talking about a few challenges that have been brought to this concept. People who question whether or not the term intrinsic evil actually applies to uh, any any actions in a substantive way, whether or not any actions are actually intrinsically evil, or whether the term actually has any um, non-redundant significance. And I will uh, explain what that means a bit later. So um, intrinsically evil actions are normally understood to be actions that can never be performed regardless of a person's motivation or their uh, effects, their anticipated outcome, or the circumstances in which they're done. Something uh, like rape, for example, you would, can never do that. It's never a good idea. You can't do that for any reason, no matter how noble. And um, But uh, the question, the, 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 that's the, the general understanding, but the term itself is understood in contradistinction to extrinsically evil actions. So the term intrinsically evil uh, as applied to actions is actually relatively new. It's only a few hundred years old. And uh, it, it refers to actions that are understood to be wrong in themselves rather than wrong for some other reason. So an extrinsically evil action is not wrong in itself, but is wrong because a lawgiver says so. Like for example, um, eating meat on Fridays during Lent, you're not, you ju there's nothing wrong with eating meat. That action in itself uh, has no moral problem whatsoever. Uh, but if you do it uh, during Lent on a Friday, if you're a Catholic, then it's wrong. And it's not wrong because of the nature of the action, it's wrong because of the rules that you have to abide by as a Catholic. Uh, and those things make it wrong. But an intrinsic right. evil action is, is one that is wrong in itself. So something that is uh, uh, wrong regardless of who you are, where you are, you know, uh, something like murdering, that's just wrong. Yeah, it's, uh, I think of a passage in Galatians. In Galatians 5, he talks about the works of the flesh and says there's all sorts of works in the flesh. And he mentions things like drunkenness and envy, carousing, whatever, party spirit. And then he says, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that certainly isn't saying, it doesn't use the word intrinsic, but I wonder if that's, that's basically the sort of thing we're talking about, right? Anything that if we do it, we're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So maybe that's from a theological point of view, but we could also take it maybe from the natural law point of view. This is just a, a bad thing that's not good for human flourishing. Right. And, and there if you are... do it, no matter what, it's going to be bad. Is that is that the same thing as an intrinsic evil? Yeah, that's that's basically the idea. Uh, what St. Paul is saying there is that there are certain kinds of actions that are simply unacceptable. It's interesting that he says envy. Uh, you know, you wouldn't really consider that an, an action. Uh, but 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 nevertheless, that attitude is something over which you have control and something that you should avoid. Yeah, but, it is interesting because he says those who do such things. So I wonder what the idea is. What does it mean those to do envy? <laughs> do such envious things. Yeah. 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 Uh, so so the the idea that there are certain kinds of actions that you simply shouldn't perform 
is not alien to the Christian tradition. Uh, St. Augustine famously, for example, says that lying is an unacceptable action. You can never, ever, ever lie. And uh, a lot of people, when they hear that, are shocked and they try to quibble with it immediately and start coming up with examples about you know, Nazis and hiding Jewish people under the floorboards and can you lie to the Nazis to protect people's lives? And Augustine emphatically says, no, you can't. And mm -hmm. that's surprising to people, but he's he's very careful in considering all sorts of scenarios where you could prevent somebody from killing you or killing somebody else or raping you or raping somebody else, all sorts of terrible things. And he ends up concluding, no, you can't do this. So that idea is is shocking to people that, that he would take it that far. You can't ever, ever, ever lie. Uh, so in response, some people uh, try to argue that we shouldn't have this concept of intrinsically evil actions because it leads us to very bad places. But I think it should be um, it it should be taken for granted. I think everyone agrees that there are certain actions that are simply bad, and that no matter who you are uh, or what your morality is, there's some action that I can name. And if I name it, you would agree that there's no justification for it. So I think I actually think that everyone agrees that there are intrinsically evil actions, but the debate is actually about what they are, what the list should contain. Yeah, that's that's interesting because it reminds me of we've talked before about the idea that John Paul seems to be holding relativism as a, almost like the greatest evil of our time. Uh, and I mean, I just looked it up in Veritati Splendor. He actually only mentioned it seven times there, but he speaks about relativism a lot. Mm -hmm. And as if it's, you know, a, a great grave evil. Uh, but if it's the case, in fact, that now in today's world, people actually aren't just relativistic. They've just gone on board with saying, look, you guys on the other side are wrong and our side is right. And therefore, if you do or say X, you're evil, then right. we now have a different situation that we're dealing with, right? Yeah, I don't actually think that uh, relativism is the enemy in, in our day and age. Um, I mean, depending on what you mean by it, but if, if relativism is taken to mean that uh, for certain people, certain things are right or wrong, and that list of what's right or wrong is, is different for everybody, and everybody has a unique set of actions that are good for them or bad for them, then it's that's definitely wrong. And I actually don't think that anyone thinks that, because everyone today, regardless of the political camp they fall into, will have some actions that they think that nobody should perform. And perhaps today, um, you know, uh, uh, among, let's say, liberals who might, who might be more prone to deny uh, the idea of intrinsically evil actions, they might nevertheless say that you shouldn't be a racist. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't perform any action that's motivated by racism no matter who you are. And if that's the case, then will they believe in intrinsically evil actions? They just might put an action on that list of intrinsically evil actions that other people might not put on it. Yeah, it's just so fascinating how that has, I think there's been a development in the culture for sure. Um, I, I was looking at reconciliation and penit penitence, a document of JP2 today. Mm -hmm. And he mentioned, again, relativism there and spoke of it as an ethical, he said, relativism can take a form of an ethical system that relativizes the moral norm, denying its absolute and unconditional value, and as a consequence, denies that there can be intrinsically illicit acts independent 
of the circumstances. Right. Um, so that certainly was a, a, a big topic for both him and Pope Benedict, who spoke about the dictatorship of relativism. Right. Um, but if that's not our real enemy, then what is the import of discussing intrinsically evil acts? Is it is it a less of a important consideration actually in today's world? And even though maybe it's important to some extent, we should be moving on to some other way of defending our perception or the church's perception of moral truths. Yeah, I think there are a couple of reasons why it's important to defend this concept. The first is goes all the way back to St. Augustine, who uh, in his work, De Mendatio, where he argues that lying is intrinsically evil, although he doesn't use that word and we'll get into it, he argues that you can never, ever, ever lie. One of his arguments is that um, if you say that in certain circumstances, lying is okay, or 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 not not only not a sin, but actually justified, then you have to ask the question on of what basis. And if you say uh, because of the effect of the lie, you have, you're trying to save somebody's life or something like that then um, you have deviated from the moral norms of the church, uh, according to which you're not supposed to lie ever, and you have replaced those moral norms with another set, which cannot but be arbitrary. So what you've done is you've adopted an arbitrary set of moral norms, according to which you think lying would be good in this case, although it might not be good in that case. And if you are saying that it's okay to lie for this good reason, then in principle, what you've done is you have um, justified any kind of mass atrocity, terrible evil uh, on the basis of a good intention. Mm -hmm. And it's really, diff it's, it's, you, you get in a very dark place very quickly when you do that, because now what you've done is you have said that it's okay for somebody to do whatever they want provided that they think that their intention is good enough. And it's not clear where the limits should fall on such a moral calculus. Yeah, so if people are focused now on the effects, and, and I wonder if that's part of the reason why it seems like the principle of double effect is spoken of a whole lot, maybe more than it needs to be, um, mm -hmm. because we're so just thinking not about the act itself, its integral nature, whatever, we're talking about the effects of the act. But what's interesting is that the first principle of double effect, right, is that you shouldn't do something that's either bad or exactly. Well, it has to be good or indifferent. Exactly. So I mean, that, I mean, the, the first the first criterion uh, when you're applying double effect is effectively ruling out intrinsic evils. That's its purpose. The yeah. action that you're seeking to perform must be good or indifferent. So nothing intrinsically evil. So I think that's that's the reason why we want to uphold this idea of intrinsically evil actions, because we we want to keep moral standards in place. And if you deny that there are certain kinds of actions that are intrinsically evil, then you've um, if you at, at best what you've done is you've adopted a kind of consequentialism where you think that actions are judged only in terms of their effects. And there are a number of problems with that um, kind of moral calculus. Uh, not least of which is that you can't know what the effects of an action are going to be. It's impossible to predict exactly what the the, the outcome is going to be. And, and another another giant problem of it is that you 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 can't actually calculate uh, the the amount of evil and the amount of good that you're going to cause. There's no really way to tabulate it, uh, which is another common critique of of consequentialism. And then thirdly, 
you have a giant problem regarding who gets to to decide how to morally tabulate the effects of an action so as to arrive at the judgment that it's good or bad. It kind of leads to this 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 relativism. And I think you can see that in the history of, of Western thought, right? You utilitarianism was very popular. Then relativism became relatively popular. And that's probably because utilitarianism can't but lead to relativism. But then relativism doesn't work because we're we're social beings and we have to agree on some sets of standards. So, you know, um, uh, unwittingly, people who claim to be relativists end up adopting moral norms. And we, I think we see that today. We, we see that like, you, go, you go on social media, there are definitely rules that people have to follow. And the people who are upholding those rules were born in a relativistic environment. Hmm. So you don't think people today are invoking utilitarianism in some way or... Uh, actually, you know, what, John, actually, what John Paul calls proportionalism or consequentialism, these things where they're these moral that, ideas no. where they're just focused on the end and not the act itself. I think that we're past that. Okay. I think that that was the case among uh, I think I think that was uh, that was the case for most of Western society for a couple of decades. And that now we're, we're either past it or moving past it where people are. uh uh, adopt maybe even in spite of themselves adopting mm -hmm. moral norms uh and this what's his name i think it was um nicholas healy no sorry hanby 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 had a interesting article in the lamp magazine a few issues ago where he was talking about technocracy and one of the really scary things about technocracy is that um nobody's really in charge of it so if you think about cancer cancel culture and twitter mobs and things like this the 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 Twitters, the people on the Twitters, they're definitely upholding moral norms. They're definitely condemning people on the basis of their actions. And no matter how apologetic they are, no matter how much they try to justify themselves, it doesn't work. So people are clearly upholding absolute moral norms, but the norms that they're upholding end up being arbitrarily derived by a mob. So there's no there's no clear logic to what is going to be taboo five years from now. Mm -hmm. Can't really predict it, but something ends up being taboo. So yeah. they're they're I think they're upholding intrinsic evils. Okay, well let's talk more specifically about what it means to have an intrinsic evil or to do an intrinsic evil. Sure. Um, so first, I mean, what is what is the history behind the term? Like yeah, when did yeah. it start being used? Right. So as I mentioned before, intrinsically evil actions are understood in contrast to extrinsically evil actions. Um, and the idea of, of, of intrinsically evil actions particularly arose out of the medieval concept of what's called malum ex genere, or malum in se, or malum secundum se, all terms you can find definitely in Aquinas and certainly before Aquinas and in William of Auxerre um, and so on. Um, and that itself... Uh, is a term that developed in order to describe the kind of thing that St. Augustine was talking about, where he describes certain kinds of actions uh, as being of such a kind that you can never perform them. So uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages, they had these various terms, which effectively means bad in themselves or bad according to their kind. And uh, what that means is that there are certain kinds of actions such that if you can name an action as such, as ident identified as belonging to a particular group, uh, then you can conclude immediately that this is not an action that you can perform uh, morally. It's, it's not morally good. 
And in uh, in the Middle Ages, they had this um, dictum, which was uh, uh, bonum ex integra causa, malum ex quoquemque defecto, which means that uh, if an action is going to be good, then every aspect of it has to be good. And if any aspect of it is bad, then the action is bad. So uh, there are three sources of the goodness of an action that they would identify, the object, the intention, and the circumstances. And effectively, uh, this these are the thing that you're doing, that's the object, the choice to do this kind of thing, the reason why you do it, the intention, and then anything else that might be relevant, which are the circumstances. And uh, the idea is that if any one of those things is bad, if you can conclude that any one of those things is bad, then the action is bad. So intrinsically evil actions are those that have an evil object, where when you identify this action as belonging to a particular kind and that kind of thing is bad, then the action is bad. So a basic example is uh, murder. Can't do it, don't do it, never do it. So if someone were to threaten you and say, I, I want you to kill this person, and if you don't, then I'm going to murder 10 other people, can you do that? Then the answer is no, you can't do that because you can't murder somebody. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter why. Uh, and for the consequentialists, the answer is yeah, you, you can do that because it's better for uh, one person to die than for 10 people to die. But the problem for in, in the Catholic perspective is that, well, doing that makes you a murderer and you, don't, you can't be a murderer. You don't want to do that. Uh, so um, so that's, that's the history of the term. There are these kinds of actions that we think are intolerable. The big question uh, when analyzing this tradition is to try and figure out what should be included on the list. Mm -hmm. Now, as Catholics, we have a couple of resources to help us figure this out. We have, the, we have revelation, obviously, but we also have the natural law. We have human nature. So as, a, as a John Paul II explains it in Veritati Splendor, anything that's incompatible with human nature, anything that is bad according to human nature, uh, can't be good for you. Uh, it, it, by, by, by virtue of the nature of the action, if you are inclined by nature to do such and such a thing, any action that is contrary to that thing is, is bad for you. Um, likewise, since man is social, anything that is bad for society in, in, as such like lying, for example, is wrong because it's contrary to the social nature of man. Yeah, I think that comes up in Casti Canubi as well of uh, Pius XI, the first encyclical kind of on on marriage and whatever contraception, I guess. I don't mm -hmm. know, does it cover contraception explicitly? Yeah, it does, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah, well, basically talking about contraception, I guess, then he talks about like, yeah, there's actions that are contrary to nature and that cannot be turned into something that is in keeping with nature just in virtue of your intention or the circumstances. And I so think that that encyclical is the first place where you see intrinsically evil in a magisterial document. Oh, it's, interesting. In, it's intrinsice in honestum there. Mm, yeah, it's not right. Intrinsice malum, intrinsice in honestum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that term comes up then later on, but obviously this goes way back, like you were saying. That the notion is found in in Augustine. It's found in Scripture. Um, I wanted to mention too. I mean, because just thinking about this got me wondering about Aristotle. And uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics, in Book Two of the Nicomachean Ethics, 
he talks about how there's some things that just can't be done because he's saying how you know there's a mean mm -hmm. with virtue but yeah. there is no mean for vices there's no right way to commit adultery or whatever exactly. else. exactly exactly so so yeah he, he talks there about adultery theft and murder and says that they are themselves bad and it seems and, to be basically the same as per se it's to outa right uh, but anyway it's interesting right i mean the idea is certainly there even in philosophy even through natural law we can figure this out but the and church he also, helps us he, he also uh upholds he, he also there talks about lying as being one of those things when he's talking about the virtue of justice. Mm, yeah. uh, and, and relatedly, so, so you can have the Aristotelian perspective and you can say any action that we can identify as vicious is never one that you can perform. But you can, the, the natural law tradition from the Stoics gives you another way of analyzing an action, any action that is self-contradictory. So, mm. you know, contraception, we could say is... Uh, self-contradictory because it is contrary to the end of the faculty that you're perverting when you uh, use contraception. Yeah. So I think there, th th those are two frameworks that we can use for identifying intrinsically evil actions. Yeah, interesting. Um, so then, so that's so that's the concept. Those are some ways we can try to to arrive at a list, as it were. I don't I don't know that there exists any comprehensive list of intrinsically evil actions. But of course, uh, the controversy that we are uh, concerned with now uh, has to do with the challenges that were brought against the concept of intrinsically evil actions by 20th century Catholic moralists, uh, which was mostly took the form of proportionalism. It also took the form of the fundamental option, fundamental option theory. Um, but I don't personally, I don't actually know of anyone who upholds uh, fundamental option theory anymore. But uh, proportionalism was very popular in its day. It was condemned by Veritate Splendor in what was it, 1993? Mm -hmm. And then uh, it, I, I think, died a pretty quick death. Uh, there were a few people who tried to uphold the school of proportionalism and argued that John Paul II hadn't understood them. But I don't think that they really won any disciples. Uh, people more or less gave up on the project until recently. There are now a couple of people who are suddenly trying to revive proportionalism again. So it is actually something worth paying attention to. So it's um, it's interesting uh, because the school of thought that came to be known as proportionalism actually has its origins in an article by Peter Nauer, K-N-A-U-E-R. Uh, he's still alive. He's a, he's, a, he's a Jesuit and he did his doctorate at the Gregorianum in Rome. And um, his dissertation was on the principle of double effect. And effectively, what he does in that article, long story short, that dissertation, is he reduces the principle of double effect to the, to the fourth criterion of proportionality. And uh, he, he uses proportionality as the key to understanding all of the other uh, criteria of the principle of double effect. So mm -hmm. one of the problems that people who apply the principle of double effect have to deal with is how can you say that you're going to do something that is itself not evil, but it is going to cause bad things to happen and nevertheless say that you don't intend for those bad things to happen. Now, so a classic example of the principle of double effect would be, for example, uh, a pregnant woman has uh, cancer and she needs to take chemotherapy otherwise she's going to die mm -hmm. we know that the chemotherapy is going to be very harmful to her unborn child probably going to kill it 
but mm -hmm. we say she could take the medicine anyway because she doesn't intend to kill her unborn child. Immediately, people object to this. They say, how can you say that she's not intending? You know, it would be wrong to abort the child, but it isn't wrong to take chemotherapy. You're just, you're playing with semantics and you're splitting hairs. Yeah. This is actually very reasonable. Uh, you know, you can say, for example, that a, a woman who is pregnant might have intended to get pregnant, but she definitely didn't intend to suffer morning sickness. You know, it's pretty, I think everyone agrees with that. It's pretty clear. So it's definitely possible mm -hmm. to know that something bad is going to happen as a result of your actions. And yet you don't intend for that bad thing to happen. So how can we de determine what you intend and what you don't intend? And Peter Nauer's solution to this problem is to appeal to proportionality. And what he says is uh, the overall, if you analyze your action and you conclude that the overall um, effect of the action is good, then whatever evil you cause, you don't intend. And if you conclude that the overall effect of your action is bad, then it would be imprudent to choose it. And you can't say that you're doing this without intending the evil effects. You are intending the evil effects. So, so he uses proportionality. So what happens is that pe people eventually catch on to this. At, at first, they're skeptical, and rightly so, because it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. But um, people start to catch on to this, and they develop a school of thought that ends up being called pro proportionalism. And the idea behind proportionalism is that when you're considering an action, you have to judge it in light of all of its um, consequences. Uh, that you have to you have to take into account the circumstances in which the action takes place, the intention of the agent, what's going to happen, and you have to weigh all of this, mm -hmm. and you have to figure out whether or not the overall effect of performing this is good or evil. And if it's good, then you can do it, and you don't actually intend the evil things. So here's the the the, the problem with this, is that uh, the proportionalists argue that you cannot judge the morality of an action until you take into account all of these factors. So if you want to talk about, for example, something like asserting a falsehood, that may or may not be lying for a proportionalist. It's only lying if it has bad effects that outweigh its good effects. Mm -hmm. And you know this when you do it. And when you choose to do that, then you're lying. But if you're trying, for example, to save somebody's life by tricking somebody, then all you're doing is asserting a falsehood. You're not lying. So is this essentially just saying, taking the criteria for a double effect and saying, we're just going to focus on the fourth one? Pretty much, yeah. So forget about the act itself. We can't figure out the act itself, whether it's good or indifferent, until we've got the effects. Let's start with the effects. Um, yeah, exactly. So I mean, the, I, the way I like to say this in class is that, you know, uh, some, when I'm, some, some moral analyses that I do in class sound proportionalist or consequentialist because I'm talking about the effects. You shouldn't do this because the effects would be really bad. And people say, wait, yeah. but you said that was wrong. No, no, no. The thing about Catholic moral theology is that we care about all of these things. We care about what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what's going to happen as a result. Yeah. All of those things. So the problem with proportionalism is they try to reduce the entire moral calculus to the outcome, to the effects. Mm -hmm. You should care about the effects, but you should also care about what you're doing. But they would say that what you're doing can only be understood after you've already considered the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It makes me think of like ectopic pregnancies and the way that applies to the criteria for double effect, because 
there it's like, well, okay, so if you have an ectopic pregnancy, you might have a, the child is in the fallopian tube. And then the question is, well, can you remove that fallopian tube, even though you know that an effect of this is going to be that a child dies? Well, the church says, yeah, that's okay. Why? Because simply removing the place in which the, the child is, is not directly acting on an innocent human being to kill it. It's simply moving the location. And so in and of itself, even though that's the most, a very difficult one, in and of itself, that's not an evil act. So then you can go through the rest of the criteria and then get to okay, let's see if the good outweighs the bad. And you can say at least it, it's, uh, it outweighs it or it's equal, equal in, in gravity to so I, a... Yeah, I have, I, have, I have two thoughts on that. The, the first is that I think the key to understanding the justification of a salpingectomy, the removal of a fallopian tube, is yeah. to note that that action is intelligible whether there's an embryo in the fallopian tube or not. So mm -hmm. if the fallopian tube were diseased and were causing harm to a woman you could remove it regardless of whether there's an embryo there. So what that means is that the fact, yeah. the, the, the fact that an embryo is there does not enter into your identification of the kind of action you're doing. The second thing is that I actually think that uh, even, even people who are not at all proportionalist end up treating the fourth criterion of the principle double effect about proportionality in a kind of utilitarian way, as if you could do a calculus. I actually think that that's not how Aquinas uh, understands it. So although mm. the, the, the principle of double effect is not explicitly found in Aquinas, but it's derived from his principles, right? Especially self-defense. And yeah. when Aquinas is talking about self-defense, what he says is that you can only apply enough force to ward off an attack and no more. Yeah. And that's where the criterion of proportionality comes from. And I think what he means is that if you are defending yourself and you apply contrary force to an attacker such as so as to ward off the attack then your uh action can be understood um as an act of self-defense yeah but if you apply more force than would be necessary to repel an attacker attacker then your attack can't be understood as an act of self-defense but rather an act of vindictiveness exactly so yeah. so so the so the proportionality criterion is not really a calculus about expected outcomes rather it is um setting expectations for what is appropriate for you to do if you understand your action to belong to a particular kind yeah i think that's right for what saint thomas was talking about in the what is that secunda secunde i forget murder, 40s, yeah. yeah but it seems to me that the kind of standard ways of explaining the criteria for double effect also work. Do you disagree with that? Like the the fourth one is that the, the good effect has to outweigh the bad effect. So you've already realized that the act you're doing is not evil. So what are the outcomes of it going to be? And if the good outcome outweighs the bad outcome, then that's okay. To me, that seems okay. Whereas what's happening with proportionalism is they're kind of like comparing the act that you're doing with the effect and saying, oh, is the effect going to be good? Okay, then it doesn't matter what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so I, first of all, I'm, I'm suspicious of that way of framing the fourth criterion of the principle of double effect. I know that that's, norm, that's often the way it's done. People talk yeah. about, uh, they would say that the good effect must be equal to or greater than the bad effect or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I would rather say that uh, there must be a proportionate reason for justifying the bad effect. That's the mm -hmm. way I prefer to do it. 
because I'm kind of suspicious of the moral calculus uh, that would go into applying the fourth criterion of the principle of double effect if it's framed in the first way. You'd have to kind of come up with this uh, addition and subtraction of goods or uh, weighing them on a scale or something like that. And um, I think that in the in the the standard Catholic moral theological refutation of utilitarianism, you, that it also would refute that kind of just definition of the fourth criterion or the principle of double effect. But if you're saying that the act you're doing is okay, then it's not jumping to utilitarianism. It seems to me you already know it's okay. Now what are the effects? I'll put I don't it, see I'll how put that like this. Uh, consider consider the difference between. Um, palliative care and euthanasia, um, physically, from an outside perspective, they might look quite similar. You, you, have, a, you have a terminally yeah. ill person and you're giving them pain medication. The difference between palliative care and euthanasia um, is found in the intention. You know, what, what, are you, what are you intending to do by giving this person this medication? Is it to relieve their pain mm -hmm. or is it to um, kill them, you know, to relieve their pain by killing them? And uh, if your intention is the former, you're going to relieve their pain, then you're going to be very careful about the dosage. And if your intention is the latter to kill them, then you're not going to be very careful about the dosage. You're just going to give them as much as it takes. Yeah. And so uh, that will affect the physical manifestation of the action. But I think that you can see the difference in the fourth, in the application of the fourth criterion, because if your intention is to, is pain management, then, uh, you will give only as much medicine as you need to achieve that end. And if your intention is otherwise, then you're going to give a lot more. So I think that's a better way to apply proportionality. It's like, what, what is the appropriate course of action within our chosen species such, such that we can be sure that we're still acting in accord with this good species rather than a bad one? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I just don't think we want to focus totally on the intention. Like, it's not just about your intention, but that's kind of where you're bringing in. Well, if your intention's right, you're not going to be doing something that materially is disproportionate. Um, so there's definitely yeah. stuff to work out here. And I, I think that there's there's stuff to work out. So bringing the conversation back to the question of proportionalism and intrinsic evils. Yeah. Um, I definitely think proportionalism is wrong. And I think that people have, made that quite clear, but that doesn't mean that the um, the other side, as it were, the side that upholds the reality of intrinsically evil actions has all everything figured out either. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so to, to close the book on proportionalism, effectively, they, the proportionalists even tried to go so far as to say that their, their interpretation, their theory uh, was derived from Thomistic principles and was a proper interpretation of Aquinas. <laughs> and that's, completely absurd um, for a number of reasons, but one of the most obvious is that Aquinas thinks, like Augustine, that lying is never justifiable. Mm -hmm. And if the proportionalists were right, uh, then, so like they, they try to point out that for, they try to point out that for Aquinas killing, for example, isn't really morally right or wrong. It depends on, on what kind of killing you're talking about and how it takes place in the circumstances and attention. So, you know, mm -hmm. execution or uh, self-defense, you can kill in these circumstances, but if you killed somebody because you didn't like them, that would be wrong. And so they, they, they say that um, you, according to their theory, 
when you're talking about an action before it's performed, you can only talk about it in physical terms, like killing or asserting a falsehood. And it's only uh, when you choose to perform it in a particular set of circumstances and with certain anticipated effects that you can call it you know, murder or lying or killing in self-defense versus this like false eloquium, asserting a falsehood for a good reason. And it's it's the decision to do it to perform the action in these circumstances that makes it good or bad and allows you to apply a moral term to it, like lying mm -hmm. rather than asserting a falsehood. But mm -hmm. Aquinas, Aquinas very clearly thinks that asserting a falsehood, just if you assert something that you believe to be false, you have lied, full stop, end of story, doesn't matter what your reasoning is, doesn't matter what you expect the outcome to be. And so for Aquinas's moral calculus, if you are performing an action and it, it, it has an object and there is an intention and there are circumstances, and it can even have multiple objects, like if you steal something from a church, then that is both theft and sacrilege. If at any point in your moral consideration of an action, you arrive at something evil, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the main difference between Aquinas and the proportionalists. So, okay, fine. The proportionalists are wrong. But the question then is, well, then how do we know what things are intrinsically evil and what things are not? And the main opponents of the proportionalists are today known as new natural lawyers. Hmm. And so they came up with, because the proportionalists were trying to do this moral calculus, you can see that the new natural law analysis of a moral action is kind of the reverse of, the, of proportionalism, where they kind of reduce everything to the object of the act and they and they uh, uh, judge the object of the act in terms of what they call basic goods. So they point out that Aquinas says that there are certain things that a human being is naturally inclined to do, and those things are basic goods. So we, you know we we seek things that promote our life. We seek we seek life in society, so friendship, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then they come up with a list of basic goods, and everyone you read has a different list, but they have. They all agree on the on the logic of it. There are these basic goods. And any action that is contrary to one of these basic goods, so um, you know, contraception is contrary to procreation, uh, lying is contrary to life in society, whatever, those things are intrinsically evil. Um, and then, but but because the proportionalists were obsessed with moral calculus mm -hmm. and trying to determine before you act whether or not you could add up the amount of evil that would be caused by an action uh, versus the amount of evil that would be the good that would be caused by it and make a decision on that basis. The new natural lawyers insisted that these basic goods were what they called incommensurable. They can't be weighed. They can't be measured. They can't, you can't do addition or subtraction with them. So actions according to the to new natural law are either good or bad according uh, to whether they are in accord with the basic goods or not. And that's it. You know, and there's no way to measure them and say yeah. one's greater than another because they're incommensurable right. prior to choice. So then these uh, more uh, people objected to this view, who people who also upheld. So proportionalism was a problem. The new natural lawyers were the primary opponents of the proportionalists, and they developed this theory in response. But uh, other moral theologians who were more Thomistic in their mindset uh, pointed out that this, this theory didn't really work either because 
uh, what's good for man is understood in terms of his nature. And certain things are better than other things. And you can definitely mm -hmm. say that truth, for example, is a better good than biological life. And that's why Augustine very clearly says it's better to seek the truth at the expense of your life than vice versa, you know. Yeah. Um, but for the new natural lawyers, it doesn't make sense. You can't do this. So uh, after proportionalism was given its death sentence by Veritatis Splendor, uh, the new debate that emerged was not between new natural law and proportionalism, but rather between new natural law and what's come to be known as old natural law. Uh, natural law understood in Aristotelian or, or, or Stoic or Ciceronian or Thomistic, primarily Thomistic uh, terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now, now, now that's the main debate. That is it's interesting. I mean, it's question 94, Article 2 or something, probably yeah. that they're basing this off of. But even, even there, if I recall, Aquinas suggests there's some kind of hierarchy among these goods. So if I thought maybe where you were going with this for a second, and uh, I may have misunderstood, but was in the direction of saying that the new natural law theorists are almost focusing on the object of an act in such a way that really is physical, where you're not considering the reason why you would do something. Is that, yeah, that's is that true, right? True. So what's interesting there is in Veritati Splendor, John Paul is saying, look, you got it to, to go against the proportionalist. He's saying we got to not focus on the end, which he calls teleological, which I think is kind of an unfortunate term. But these yeah. theories that are focused on the end too much are, are bad. And, and instead of that, we have to focus on the object. And the object is the place you start when you're specifying an act. Right. Um, but then in doing that, he defends himself against being a physicalist. Right. Because the proportionalists are saying, no, you guys are all just physicalists. It's not just a matter of what you do, but why you're doing it. Right. Um, so maybe the new natural law theorists are going too far in that direction. Whereas for St. Thomas, it seems there would be some, there's more nuance, right? The object can be considered in a material way and in a formal way. And you have to consider the reason why something was chosen, even as a part of the object. Uh, yeah, well, ironically, the new natural lawyers, um, in, in their hyperemphasis on the object, when they're, they, they do uh, insist, as you say, that uh, an, an action can be, it can sometimes be said that an action is wrong and based entirely on an external description. Mm. which which we would say is physicalist uh yeah. but I, ironically given their hyper attention to the object and their way of determining what object to describe an action with they end up in a kind of intentionalist place because they're they, they're the ones who end up saying for example that a craniotomy could be justified uh mm. on the basis that so that a, that a doctor wasn't trying to kill an infant, but was simply trying to remove blockage from a birth canal. Yeah. Um, and the way they do that is by considering a hypothetical. They say, well, if it was possible to crush an infant's head without killing it, such that the baby somehow didn't die and could survive the procedure, they would prefer to do that. Hmm. So you see that kind of ends up in an intentionalist place. Yeah, it's kind of like if somebody comes in the room and tells me to shoot all my students, I prefer not to in order to save like, like if he says, I'm going to shoot all your students unless you shoot one of them. Okay, I prefer not to shoot one of them. But, you know, for the good of like the whole, I guess I'm just going to shoot one. Yeah, that's kind of the problem with it.
Um, yeah. So, but you're right. So, so what's happened since is that the new natural lawyers and what are what I'm going to call the old natural lawyers have been debating for I guess it's like 30 years now, almost 30 years, about mm. how to determine what the object of an action is. And the debate's far from over. Uh, there, it's it's definitely still waging. And even the old natural lawyers had dis disagreements among themselves, but the basic um, the basic dispute is whether an external description of an action is sufficient, or whether the intention needs to enter into it, and um, what kind of role the intention plays, and how the intention is restricted by the external description. So the basic the, the basic picture you get from Aquinas is that an action has both a, a, a material component and a formal component. Mm -hmm. Material component uh, is, is, uh, is derived from the ex exterior act, the thing that you choose to do. So, you know, taking somebody's car. Mm -hmm. And then the, the formal component is the interior act of the will, which is the choice to do this. And that was, is uh, like uh, the act, the, the choice to do that. So, so in the in the case of stealing somebody's car, the exterior act is the getting into the car and driving away with it, and the interior act is uh, choosing to do that in spite of the fact that you know that the car doesn't belong to you, and so it is in fact the formal component of an action, the interior act of the will that specifies the action as theft. But it's because yeah. of an exterior circumstance that you're able to identify it as theft. So you can't get into the action into the car and drive away knowing that it belongs to somebody else and insist that you're not stealing. So the yeah. the exterior act the uh, necessarily limits the description that you can put on that action. Nevertheless, it is still the intention to perform it that gives it specification, and that's really tricky. So you so the intention matters, the mind of the acting person, that's really important. Yeah. But a person doesn't act in a vacuum where they just get to create reality however they want. They have to act in the real world. And so their understanding of what they're doing is limited by the situation that they're acting in. Yeah. I mean, to my mind, it's tricky because we got to figure out whether the object itself has a formal aspect to it because when you mention the interior uh motive of the will or whatever uh is that in reference to the end or is that in reference to some reason for choosing the object that actually is a part of the object yeah see the thing is i don't uh i i in my mind those two are the same thing aquinas says it's with respect to the end I mm -hmm. actually think Aquinas is pretty confusing on this point. Yeah, uh, which is probably why we've been debating it for thirty years. Yeah, but I want to look into it more because I mean I remember Steve Long who who taught me moral theology. He would he would talk about the object having a material and a formal part. The material part was the act itself, its integral nature, its per se effects. The formal part he would call the ratio appetibilitas, the reason for the choice worthiness of it, and he would say that's an oblique reference to the end. But right. the end is something distinct. And yeah, so maybe so, it would be like, you know, why are you choosing the car? Well, I'm choosing it because I want to have the car. Uh, but then maybe the end is like, well, I want to impress the girl next door with this fancy car. Yeah, um, I think that the, the, the helpful distinction there is the end of the action versus the end of the agent. Uh, yeah, right. 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 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The finis operis, finis operantis. Right. So we can we can say that the you know the the per the per se end of heating something is that something is heated. There's there's always an, uh, a directionality to an action, mm -hmm. and uh, when it comes to a person's ulterior motive, their other their intention, you know, you can do X because of Y. Uh, if you choose X for some reason, you know, I don't know. Let's let's think of an example. Um, uh, oh, sometimes thinking of, of of these kinds of examples can be difficult. Um, I don't know. I'm 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 eating a medium rare steak. Uh, now the the per se end of that is that I I get nourished. But I could also do it because I'm with a vegetarian and I want to scandalize them. I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, so that's that's the agent's end. Yeah. And if you're performing a good action, then the end of the action and the end of the agent have to be commensurable. An evil action will have an end that is incommensurable with the end of the agent. So that the mm -hmm. two there's there's a there's a disharmony there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, but 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 so 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 to 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 talk about the controversy a bit, you you mentioned you study with Steve Long. Steve Long, for example, uh, thinks that if somebody is threatening your life uh, by breaking into your house, for example, and they're armed, you yeah. can just pick up a shotgun and shoot him. You know? Yeah. But Steve only, is, but I mean, with qualification, if, if it's the case that you have to shoot him in, well, maybe you have to shoot him somewhere to defend yourself, but it's, there still has to be a proportionate reason, he would say, uh, you know, proportionate amount of force that you use. But he would say that you could even shoot them in the head, right. knowing that's going to kill them, right. because you are, your end is self-defense. And if that's what you have to do in a particular strange circumstance, uh, to wield off his aggression, then you can do it. Whereas others might say, you know, well, that's that's obviously murder. Um, he would say that's not the case. Yeah. So, and and then the the, the new natural lawyers uh, think that the old natural lawyers are being self contradictory because, for example, everyone would agree. Like the new natural lawyers defend the craniotomy and say, well, you know, if a doctor has to crush an infant's head to get through the birth canal, he's not intending to kill the baby. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the old natural lawyers say that's crazy. You can't crush a baby's head and say that you're not killing it. And the old and the new natural lawyers say, okay, well then, how about you know you're a soldier and you throw yourself on a grenade to save your mm -hmm. friends. You know you're gonna die, uh, but that's obviously a noble act, right? And we go, yeah, of course that's a noble act. And they go, well then, how is it not suicide? Mm -hmm. So the, the the figuring out the precise role that what old natural lawyers want to say is that the material component of an action, the exterior act matters. It is matter and it matters. Uh, <laughs> and, and, um, but, the, but, but figuring out precisely what kind of limitations it places on an acting agent's intention is tricky. Mm -hmm. yep. So like, I don't know, like I, I, this is what, this is what John Paul II is getting at in Veritati Splendor when he says that, you can't identify an object of an action based on its um, external description alone. You have to, you have to look at it from the perspective of the acting agent. So, you know, 
let's let you you can look at a, a, an action like having sex you can't walk into the confessional and say forgive me father for i have sinned i had sex he's yeah. gonna say with whom yeah yeah you know and you or 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 you you saw two people on the street exchanging money with each other it could be a bribe that you just witnessed it it could be just payment of a debt uh you don't know it, you could just you could witness theft going on perhaps somebody has a gun in his pocket so you just don't know the external description doesn't matter but the thing is that the external description although it isn't sufficient to specify an action as belonging to a particular type it does limit the range of labels that you could apply to that action yeah so maybe it's not that it doesn't matter it's just that it's not sufficient for providing a full does. analysis of the morality yeah. right right yeah yeah good so there we are. Uh, we have a whole bunch of problems. <laughs> we've come to the conclusion that intrinsic evils are not good and that they're found in tradition and in philosophy and that there's people that argue against them by trying to come up with ways of reordering the traditional uh, manners of evaluating moral action, maybe redescribing the object. Um, yeah, so what, what happens is, though, that to be, to be fair to the proportionalists, which I guess isn't something that I want to do, but my you know, the, 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 the norms of the academy require me to do, yeah. um, they actually would insist that they don't deny that certain actions are intrinsically evil. What they try to do is redefine the definition of intrinsically evil actions. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they say that the term is redundant. Intrinsically evil actions are just evil actions. Any action that you determine to be evil is intrinsically evil and could not be otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so what they say is once you analyze an action, and determine that it is evil, then it, it, it could not be otherwise because you have determined that it is evil and it must so be. So it's true that intrinsically evil actions are actions that can never ever be performed, but that's only because you're never supposed to do evil things. So mm -hmm. therefore, intrinsically evil action, it's the, the term makes sense, but it's kind of useless because it's redundant. Whereas for the old natural lawyers, what the term intrinsically evil actions does is it identifies actions as belonging to a particular type such that once you identify an action as belonging to one of those actions that's on the list of intrinsically evil things, you realize that whatever course of action you are planning on performing is now an invalid choice. Yeah. I mean, what did St. Paul have in mind in Romans 3 when he said, I can't do evil, that good may come of it? Was he talking about some specific kinds of actions that we can't do? Or was he just kind of like, well, don't do evil, um, you know, in your heart of hearts, feel like you're doing the right thing. Right, exactly. It seems to me that he lists off a whole bunch of things in Corinthians and elsewhere that can never be done. Uh, so he must have something objective in mind. So, I mean, is that the issue that, that the proportionalists are, are trying to get rid of all content of, of evil? I mean, it's like there's no nothing we can look at. That's say this is of, always evil we just have to look at all the circumstances and now this isn't lying and now this isn't adultery maybe now you know whatever it is it's no, it's no longer a bad thing if you have the right intention or the the circumstances are such yeah pope both pope, pope john paul ii and pope benedict the 16th argued uh that the one of the problems with proportionalism was that it basically and you you if you were a proportionalist you basically and would end up in a place where you would never end up concluding that an action can't be performed because you could always conceivably justify it. 
Mm-hmm. So Pope Benedict XVI explicitly says that if we were all proportionalists, then there would be no martyrs. Yeah. Because you would right. eventually say, oh, well, you know, d- d- you know, the, the emperor tells you burn incense to the idol or be killed. If you're a proportionalist, you would just go, well, clearly it's better not to be killed right now. So I'm going to go and burn incense to the idol. And there's just no, no, there's nothing yeah. stopping you from doing that. And the uh, early church had all sorts of martyrs who refused to give in on their principles. Whereas, you know, now you have like, what was that movie that came out of the the Jesuit who decided not to silence. be martyred for the good of his flock or something? Silence, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see it because it was uh, so abhorrent to me. I knew it was <laughs> it was going to be pushing kind of like that it's okay to not be a martyr, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's kind of where we're at. That's what proportionalism leads to. You got to think of all the circumstances and yeah. So yeah. we're in a difficult place though because we could say, okay, well that's wrong. Sure, we should we we have to say that there are certain actions that are just always wrong. And but now we're back to the the age old problem of well, okay, well how do we determine which things we should put on the list of what counts as an intrinsically evil action. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the best way to do it is just consider the dictates of justice. What do you owe to another person? And what is what is contrary to your own good, your own nature, and uh, the nature of society? And whatever list you can come up with, you know, those are, those are the things. Of course, I think the longest list we get in a magisterial document is in Veritati Splendor. Which is really a uh, a list that is is taken from Gaudium et Spes, mm-hmm. and it would be nice to have some more clarity on this. But uh, just just because we're not we don't have the system completely worked out doesn't mean that we should abandon it. Precisely because if we do, then we end up in a very dark place. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's a fitting place to end. Would you? Uh, yeah, that's you agree? what I was thinking of. <laughs> that was my all intention. right. <laughs> well, very good. So thank you all for joining in on the conversation. Please stay tuned for more projects from the Socrates Project. We always have conferences. We have many podcasts that we come out with. We're hoping to come out with a journal. So please find us at Socrates trinaproject.org Is it Matthew? I believe. Yeah, it's .org. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you and thank you, Matthew. Yes. Thanks, Ryan.